Welcome to the After Party with the Sober Cates, where anything goes. Come hang out with us every Thursday, Thursday, while we sip our favorite booze-free beverage and talk candidly about our lives and sobriety and our party girl pasts. And let's get the After Party started. Welcome to episode 55 of the After Party. Today, we have a very special guest in honor of Father's Day coming up this weekend. We are joined by Chris Marshall. You might know him as the founder of Sam's Bar, which is a pop-up alcohol-free experience around the country, as well as its location in Austin, Texas. Now, Chris joined us today, and he has 14 years of sobriety, and he discusses his journey into sobriety, as well as his relationship with his dad, and how that molded his relationship with his own children and his passion to become a father through adoption. We hope you enjoy, and happy Father's Day, everybody. All right. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the after party. Hello, Kate. How are you? Great. Wonderful. We're so excited to have you here with us today. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So today we're going to talk to you about sober fatherhood. But first, let's learn a little bit more about Chris. So my name is Chris Marshall. Uh, I'm the owner and founder of Sands Bar, uh, an alcohol-free space based here in Austin, Texas. Um, I got sober February 16th, 2007, and I've been continuously alcohol-free since then. Um, Yeah, I guess what got me here, um, I started drinking when I was 16, and um, I, I started drinking in large part because I did not feel like I belonged uh, to the community that I was a part of. I didn't have many friends. Um, I often felt like I was an outsider. And uh, I found alcohol to be that that kind of thing that gave me the illusion of being bonded. Uh, One thing that I really sought to, to, a wound I sought to to heal was the absence of my own father growing up. And uh, we, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that, but that that's kind of you know part of the reason why alcohol seemed to fit so snugly and perfectly into my life was that it it, it was able to get in between all the the crevices and cracks in my life, and uh, I quickly took to drinking. I, I was uh, quite the prolific uh, teenage drinker. Um, the second time I drank in my life, I got a DUI total my mom's car. Uh, I just, I, I, Hey, I, I was, you know, high achiever. Uh, so yeah, I, I came out of the gate of, yeah, if go you're going to do it, do it, just go, go straight for it. Right. Uh, so yeah, I definitely started off my alcohol use pretty, um, pretty fast and furious. And, um, that continued on through high school. I, I, technically did not graduate high school. I had to finish in summer school because uh, I was drinking at school. So this was like, you know, 16, 17 year old kid drinking at school. Uh, I really had a problem very early on. Uh, College, same thing happened. Um, Never feeling like I belonged and then always questioning like what it meant to be a man and a young man. And I found the fraternity to kind of give me that sense of what it is to be a man. And uh, what I saw was that part of that the currency that was exchanged amongst young boys and young men was alcohol. So I 
just jumped right in. <laughs> I was already drinking heavily, so it just made more sense to be in a, in a social situation where that was acceptable. The problem was I was drinking way more than even my peers were. You know, my friends were drinking to have fun and, uh, you know, on the weekends, I was drinking to feel complete, to, to feel whole, to feel normal. Uh, and that's not why they were drinking. And it was something that my friends quickly observed. They, they could understand that I was not drinking for the same reasons that they were drinking. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I turned 23, got a treatment for the first time. And then after that, um, checked myself out of that treatment and uh, tried to white knuckle it, as they say, on my own, trying to like make it happen, trying not to drink. And it, it was painful, you know, just emotionally wrenching to, to not consume alcohol when I so desperately wanted to. Um, I was also feeling that sense of isolation, that disconnection. And uh, January of 2007, I drank again. And um, that was a fast descent into an abyss that I almost never got out of. I was um, hospitalized, you know, had the whole, you know, thing. So I went to, to detox, went to treatment. Um, and that was the first time I really began to understand that there was a life apart from alcohol that I could live my life. Um, and so I found myself at 23, uh, sober, um, and with the probability of living a longer life than I had anticipated. Uh, I, I, I really didn't think I was gonna make it past like 25, but once I got sober, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole life. I may get old. I may have gray hair. I mean, I'm not I ended prepared up losing my for hair. any of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I was gonna have like this gray hair. It, did, it didn't happen. I just lost all my hair. But uh, I was not prepared. I, I literally uh, expected to only live 25 years. And so, dreams, hopes, aspirations, goals, a vision of like what my life would look like, it was a blank canvas. I literally had no idea of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, and in many ways, it's a beautiful place to be. Like, you know, how many, how often in life do you just kind of wake up as an adult and just say like, there's, there's an unlimited number of possibilities for your life. Um, so I, I do feel very fortunate that I stopped drinking at 23. Um, and it wasn't because I necessarily wanted to, I just physically couldn't anymore. My body just could not continue to have alcohol. It literally was rejecting alcohol as soon as I put it in. It, it just, it, my body was done before my head was. Um, and I'm grateful for that. So yeah, I mean, that's where I found myself at 23, you know, single, uh, no, no career path, no ambition uh, beyond surviving. Uh, breathing was hard enough. Uh, facing the world without alcohol was enough. Um, facing the things that I had done was enough. Um, there was there was so much weight in walking those early days of sobriety. Um, it, it was really tough. And uh, over time, the weight lifted and it got easier and easier to, to walk. And I think going back to school was a big piece of the puzzle for me. It, it helped me to realize like, wait a second, I, I, I can actually succeed. And so I went back to school, became a counselor, and started working with individuals who were just like me, who were suffering with, with substances. So uh, in school, 
met my wife uh, and uh, quickly realized that like I could actually have a life where I like have love and have family. Like it was just, <laughs> I mean, it, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, it. It's literally like thinking the the movie is over and then you just realize it's only getting started, that the best part is ahead of you. Uh, that, that feeling is something that I've, I've almost grown accustomed to feeling. Like now, I, now it's a part of my existence, but before it was so fresh and so new. It was so different than anything I had known before because everything else was about finality. Everything else was about the past. Everything was about reliving and um, relitigating the past over and over in my mind, just, just trying to make sense of the senseless. So that's how I got sober. Um, and that was just the beginning of my story. That's incredibly beautiful. I think I really resonate with the, the best is yet to come. Because when we were drinking, like, yeah, I, don't, I could have never envisioned the life that I have now, kind of like you said, I'm I'm creating my own family now. And it like means the world to me that I get to create that myself um, compared to what I always experienced through my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Absolutely. funny. Like I had always thought that I was going to be dead by 25 as well for some reason. And like, even before I started drinking for some reason, I thought like 25, that's my expiration date. So there wasn't much of a future I had to plan for. So now like, I feel the same way that you're saying like it resonates with me that I found love and I have like a husband and a home and it's, it's not even like sobriety that I'm grateful for. It's that it gave me like hope and new life. And like, this is more than I could have ever dreamt of. And I think it's much more to be grateful for because it's something that we never even thought could happen. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that, uh, so much of what makes sobriety something I continue to find joy in and I, and I work for is that feeling. Um, I think that's what I was chasing for, you know, chasing. That's what I was chasing after in every bottle. I was hoping that at the bottom of every bottle, there was hope. And every time I realized there was just more alcohol. Like it was, it was the, the promise of something that just never came something that never happened. I never found that, that hope. I never found that inspiration. I never found any joy at the bottom of my drink. And so, uh, yeah, this life is just incredible. I continue to, to just fall in love with it because it unfolds every day, something new, something, you know, interesting, like this conversation, you know, it's just like, this is what I get to do today. How incredible is that? Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, so you started drinking, you were 16. You stopped drinking when you were 23. That's a short window of time to have that huge escalation. When you got sober and you went back to school and you became a counselor, do you think you had that same intensity in your sobriety where it's like jam-packed, this extra fast timeline of like, where did it go from, from sober counselor to then starting Sands Bar? 
Yeah. So um, I was born sprinting. Like that's just like, it's my pace. Like I just, um, you know, a lot of people when I, and this is, you know, something I, I don't really talk about a lot about, but when I got sober, a lot of people used to give me crap for being sober at 23, for only drinking for a short amount of time, right? Not even a full decade. Yeah. Um, people would just like, oh, well, I've, I've spilled more beer than you ever drank. <laughs> people don't understand. Like I was sprinting through you know, what, what took most people, you know, several decades, I did in a few years. Um, I, I really don't have a slow mode uh, in anything that I do. So yes, to answer your question, I, I was just as um, persistent and voracious about my recovery as I was about my intoxication. I um, was, a, was a heavy drinker. And I, I was heavy in those, especially those early days, heavy in recovery. Um, and it took, it took, and it's still taking time for me to learn pace. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I still struggle with, with pacing myself. Yeah. I find myself every day saying, this is not sustainable. Like every few months I'm like, I cannot sustain this pace and what I'm putting on my plate. <laughs> like, why do I keep doing this? But right, even with right. positive things, it's the same outcome at the end. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just think that some of us just run at a different rate, and we we, we just that's just how we move through life. And um, I'm always just mindful of the motivation. Like, am I doing this to run from something? Am I running to something? If I'm running from it, right, then that's not healthy. And I and I have done that in in sobriety. I've run, you know, I've used working out. I've used work. I've used um, creativity as a way to run away from. The things that I needed to face. Um, but if I'm running to something, I give myself license. I give myself license, like, okay, if this is running to a space where you are able to make peace with a part of yourself, then you can sprint. If this is going to, this sprinting leads to a, a place of, of rest and mental rest for you, and it is actual real rest, not rest that you can be more productive, but actual rest, Sprint if you need to. Like, I give myself that permission to sprint because I know that um, that's the way that I, it feels right when I sprint. Even I, I've been running race recently, been running like three miles a, a day, like every other day. And pacing is such a hard thing because I love to, like physically sprint. I love this. I don't want to jog. I want to sprint. Uh, that is just the way I live my life. I just, that's, just, that's my pace. Um, so, yeah. That's great. So where did uh, Sands Bar fall into this picture? Oh, yeah. So I totally got, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I got this. I mean, I just never really realized like how we all have these different frequencies that we kind of operate on in life. And, oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, my, my frequency has always been a little, little fast. Um, all or nothing. All, eh, yeah. All or nothing. Um, for me at and, least. No, no. For, for me too. Like if you can tell when, I, when my heart's not in it. You can tell like when I'm not about something, you can tell uh, when I'm faking enthusiasm about something <laughs> like it's, I, I, you know, I just can't, I, I don't know how to, to do anything else. Either I'm all about it or I'm not. So how did I become all about Sandsbar? Well, I was working as a client or as a counselor, working with clients and the clients that I was working with, most of them 
um, did not identify as alcoholic or having a severe alcohol problem. Some people did. Some people were really severely um, dependent upon alcohol, but a lot of people weren't. And for those people, and even for the people that were, you know, you know, dependent upon alcohol and other substances, they struggled um, to to find any way to socialize. They they didn't know how. To, to be around other people. They didn't know how to connect to other people without the presence of alcohol. And unfortunately, we live in a culture here in North America where alcohol is literally everywhere. It is, it is the, the currency of how we socialize and connect with people. It seems like you can't go anywhere without alcohol being present. It's true. Yeah, like you, you can barely always have to. You can barely go to a yoga class nowadays without alcohol being present. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, go without, uh, you know, wine and yoga or uh, bicycling and beer. I mean, it's just everywhere. And so I recognize that a lot of people were struggling with that connection piece. Some, a lot of people were looking for a space to go where they didn't have to even question what they were going to drink. And uh, that's where Sandsbar came from. I just wanted to create a space for everyone, even people who do drink. We all need a break sometimes. And that's what Sandsbar is. It's a social space where everyone can come and connect, listen to live music, dance, poetry nights, you know, all the stuff with some great drinks and feel connected to the community at large. Amazing. So you started with uh, pop-ups in different cities and now you have an actual physical location, right? In Austin? Uh, <laughs> sort of. Uh, <laughs> the way that you ask that question indicates how much I sprint <laughs> because <laughs> I did both at the same time. Like that's, that's like, oh, that's wow. like perfect. That, that's, that's everything. Um, I started as a series of pop-ups and I started doing this tour across the country called the Sandsbar National Tour. So uh, Sandsbar started as a series of pop-ups around Austin. And then I was like, okay, well then how do I get this idea kind of trending nationally? And uh, I didn't have a ton of money, but I, I took what I had and I went on this tour. And so we did nine cities in 2019. And we were slated to do, I think, 20 in 18 in 2020. And then the pandemic, of course, changed all of that. So um, yeah, I, I just touring around the country doing these pop-up events to get people excited about the, the prospect of social uh, connection and engagement, sans alcohol. That's been my passion. That's what I love to do. That's what I'm excited about doing. Uh, that's what I care about the most um, outside of my family. Speaking of your family, <laughs> we're gonna pivot to, so you're a father. Um, I am. And I guess the first thing is when you were drinking and you were, obviously now we know you were so young, but growing up or in your young, like early twenties, did you ever think of what it would be like to be a dad or could you picture yourself as being a dad? Yeah. So secretly I always wanted to be a dad. Oh. Um, it was something that I, I don't think I told anyone really. Um, I grew up without my dad. Um, when I was the, the, the earliest memory I have in fact is of my dad. Um, we, this this theme of running and sprinting keeps coming up and it coincides with the very first memory I have on this planet. Um, I was on my father's shoulders. It was an early morning and we were running. He was a pro amateur boxer 
and he was training and I was on his shoulders as he was running into the morning sun. And um, that memory is how I like to remember myself and how I like to remember him. Um, shortly thereafter, he developed the early kind of symptoms of schizophrenia and it changed him. He became a different person. Uh, my parents divorced. Um, and I was without a father. And so um, I blamed myself for, for him breaking. Um, we had a fish tank in our house. And when I was five years old, my mom said, you can do anything in this house except run in the house. You don't run in the house because I don't want you breaking anything. And uh, of course, <laughs> I've always been running. So what did I do? I ran <laughs> straight into the fish tank and I broke that, that fish tank. It was like a 50 gallon fish tank. Um, wow. water everywhere, fish everywhere. And it was my father's prized possession. Uh, he didn't have much in this world that he cared possessions. He cared much about, but that fish tank was one of them. And so I, in my mind, my five-year-old mind paired breaking that fish tank to breaking my father, uh, and no amount of convincing, um, no amount of people telling me that that wasn't connected. Nothing could, could tear apart that reality for me in my mind. I was convinced that I, that I had broken this man. And so uh, my parents' divorce, uh, I blamed myself um, and my relationship with my father over my, my young years uh, just was, was really volatile. He just was not a healthy person. Um, he continued to kind of do the thing that most people with mental health do, which is get better and then get off the meds. And then it was a, it was a cycle. Right. And so he was in and out of my life. Um, but through all of that, I was still able to remember that morning in the sun. I was still able to remember that version of my father. There were other memories that I have of him. And I think I clutched those memories and those memories are what inspired me to want to be a dad. I wanted to be a dad I, because I knew that as sick as my dad was, there was a measure of goodness in him, and that goodness was in me too. And I could be a good dad. Um, incidentally, I made a lot of friends growing up with people who were adopted. Um, and so I always wanted to adopt. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a thing I, I questioned. Like I just, I just always knew that I wanted to adopt. I wasn't so hot about having my own biological kids, frankly. Like, I don't, it just wasn't a thing. Like, I don't, I can't tell you why. Um, I just, it just like, nope, I just going to adopt. Like, that's just what I'm going to do. Um, but again, I just, I didn't say that a lot to people. Uh, I just didn't say, tell people that a lot. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good place to stop because I mean, it's just, I, I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to adopt, but I was drinking myself to death. And so when I got sober, it was a question of like, what now? And my wife and I were thinking about having kids. And I think for the longest time, I didn't feel worthy of fatherhood. I, I did not think that I was going to drink again. Like I was, it wasn't that, it wasn't that part of it. It wasn't like, Oh, what if I drink again? It wasn't that. Um, I, I know that I can never have alcohol in my life again. 
um, I really want to stay away from alcohol. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to drink again. The fear was, what if I get sick like my dad? Mm-hmm. That was the fear. Because my father was a pretty well-adjusted human being until he had a few things happen to him, um, which kind of turned on what was already there genetically. Um, mm-hmm. And it scared me. It scared me that I shared the same genetics as this man and that I would repeat the pattern. And so that, that scared me more than anything. Um, I was able to kind of talk, talk through that with my wife. Um, and we, we ended up, you know, trying to conceive and uh, we were not successful, but simultaneously we're already looking into being foster parents. So it kind of worked out that um, we became foster parents and being a foster parent felt very safe because I knew like the kid would most likely not stay with us. So it was, it was a great like trial run. Like it was more, more than babysitting, less than actually having the kid, right? Like it was like, okay, whew, this is good. I can, I can, I can uh, feel responsible without feeling responsible. Um, feeling that I could break or damage this kid more than they've already been harmed in this world. Um, and it turns out that I was a good dad. Like it just like, I'm a good dad. Like this is just comes natural to me. I love taking care of people in general and I love taking care of kids. Like it was like, okay, Chris, like this is a skill that you didn't know you had. Um, and I was good with it. I was good with them when they were babies. Uh, when we ended up fostering babies, we were just kind of like the, the house that babies went to. And so sometimes the babies would come for like, uh, like, five days. Like it'd be like a short, short stay. Sometimes it'd be a little bit longer, but, uh, for, for a while there was just like three months old for like six months. (laughs) (laughs) Like we had, we just had the, you know, that like constant, like crying, that crying diaper changing stage, getting up in the middle of the night. It was like that for like six months. It was like, it just never, (laughs) it's like groundhog day. It just never, never, never left us. Um, but I loved it. I'm a light sleeper anyways. Um, diapers did intimidate me. Um, I loved watching um, those kids feel safe. Did the fostering like help you heal that part of you that thought that you couldn't be a dad? For sure, for sure, for sure. Um, in a lot of ways, um, a lot of the kids that we ended up seeing were were hurting in ways that that I will never know. I will never know that level of of hurt, of loss, uh, of trauma. Like I will I will never know that. I've had things happen to me in my life for sure. But one thing I've always been able to count on is a stable home. I've always known that my mom was going to be home when I got home. And a lot of these kids, they didn't have that. They didn't know their mom was going to be home. If the cops were going to be waiting for them, if child services was going to be there to pick them up at school. Um, it, it, it healed a lot for me. Um, but at the same time, 
it healed a lot. I, I was going to say like, but at the same time, it didn't. Um, and it didn't because I, I, I still had to make peace with my own father. <laughs> like that's, that I feel was the, the missing link. I thought that just by having children, I would heal that part of myself. I would parent myself through parenting these kids. And the truth is that that was never going to be the case. Um, that was the same relitigation that I was doing before. I was trying a case over and over again in my mind, and it wasn't working. Um, I was a good, attentive father and a great partner to my wife, but um, I still had made peace with my dad. Um, so we kept fostering, and then um, one day, this child comes into our home, and uh, she's uh, just a beautiful baby girl, and uh, it looks like the situation's not going to work out with her bio parents. And so they're like, would you like to adopt this child? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was my daughter, Micah. And we adopted her. And it wasn't an easy process. And I know that there's so many, many difficult conversations ahead. But in that moment, we were really, and we, we always have been happy you know, that we've, we made the choice to, to make her. Um, so she chose us to be her parents. And then as we were closing her case, we had another kid come into our home, which was her biological brother. And that's our Aww. son, Jay. Um, You're gonna make me and, cry. Uh, I know, I'm like tearing up and I'm like covered in goosebumps. <laughs> and without me doing anything, without me willing it into existence, without me forcing it to be, without, without me trying. I ended up with two kids, um, just like me and my sister. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you all right? Yeah. Yeah. I lost my brother. <laughs> about 15 years ago so <laughs> it's like hitting home I'm, so <laughs> I'm gonna sorry. mute myself <laughs> yeah that's incredibly beautiful and just like remembering back how you said that you thought of that like when you were so young and that's such an interesting interesting thing to carry that you always knew that you wanted to adopt even you know as you were a kid um yeah, and I, I still haven't put my finger on why that is, um, why I wanted to adopt. And I, I'm, just, I'm just grateful I had a partner who, wanted, who agreed, <laughs> who was like, um, you know, we could definitely have our own bio kids, but I, I definitely wanted to adopt. I knew that um, that's something I wanted to do just because all my friends, the, the friends that I really loved and really loved me, again, because I felt like this alone, isolated kid, I identified with a lot of adopted and foster kids. Um, we just gravitated to, towards each other um, for whatever reason. Um, and so I, I'm so glad that, that they have each other. My, my son and my daughter have each other. Um, it's very rare for siblings to, to end up in the same home. It's very rare for them to, you know, uh, come to us as babies. Usually kids spend a lot of time in the system. And these were literally babies when they came to us. Um, wow. 
my daughter was four months old, maybe five months old. And my, my, our son was a little bit older. He was a little bit older um, when, he, when he came to us because he took a, a weird way home, but he got home to us. And um, again, I know that there's going to be a, many hard days ahead. Uh, I know one day all, my children will listen to all my podcasts that I've been on. <laughs> Um, I, I hope, I hope that they do and, um, hope that they know just how much we absolutely love them. And, um, I don't have another word for this and I hope it's not offensive, but I, we prayed for them. We prayed for them and we wanted them to be, um, in a space where they felt safe and loved and acknowledged and they had the best chance to be who they were always meant to be. Um, so yeah, that's how I became a dad. <laughs> <laughs> you all are truly meant to be together. Boy, I believe that. Um, yeah. How old are your kids now? Okay, so... Uh, my daughter is six and a half. She'll be seven in August, so a little bit more than half. And then my son is uh, five. Um, and they're just incredible. They, they really are incredible. Um, they are continuously teaching me uh, how to be in this world. Um, they're the one thing that I stopped sprinting for. They're the one um, they're the one, you know, kind of element in this earth that um, continuously and consistently grounds me. Um, I get to be their dad. Um, and it's just a beautiful thing to watch them develop into their own individuals. Um, I see so much of their biological parents because I do know about their bio parents. I see so much of their bio parents in them. So many of the good, beautiful things about their biological parents I see in them. Um, but so much of what we, who we are. Um, um, my children are white and Hispanic. So they do not look like me. So it, it's not been a hard sell, like, hey, you're adopted. Like they they they've gotten that from like Jump Street. Like they, it's never been a um never been a question. Um, you know, it's like daddy's brown. Like, yeah, daddy's brown. Like, no, daddy's really brown. Like, yes, that that's really brown. We get it, we yeah, we're different. Not the same, not the same, not your dad, not your bio dad. Yeah, got it, got it. Um you know, and that's been its own, it's been its own journey. You know, my, my daughters asked my wife the other day, am I black? I was like, mm, okay, how do we answer this? Um, uh, yes, no, uh, <laughs> you are, but you're not. Your, your whole side of your family's black. Right. Um, and you're culturally, you know, it, it was, it was a cute yeah. thing because, um, these kids have never once questioned the validity of my fatherhood. They've never once said, and they and they will. They one day will. They will say you're not my dad. We I already know that that's going to be a thing. Um, yeah. I, I know that will happen, and it will hurt. It will hurt. It will hurt. It will. It hurts to think about it. 
but I know that it's going to come because that's what happens. Um, but right now, they don't question the validity of my fatherhood. They've never once, you know, I'm their dad. I'm the only dad that they've known. Um, my wife's the only mom that they've known. Yeah, and I think that's with all kids, so <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I think I've said that to my parents. I've said I hate you. I've said it all. Yeah, I mean, we're and just, you know. You get over it. <laughs> bracing for it, because, you know, it's going to come, and that's, you know, it's all we want them to do is feel like they can always come home again. Like, like this is their home, and they're safe here. And they're safe enough to say things like that. I think that's one thing that um, I want my children to never feel like they're going to, we're going to move away from them or, or move back because they're, they're somehow different. Um, we'll always be here no matter what. Woo. I think I need a new dad. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I love my dad, but I'm just saying, I want to move in with you now. <laughs> Foster us. Hey, as long, hey, as long as you, don't watch cartoons uh, in the living room and you put your shoes um, away from the stairs because literally almost, almost lost my life today going down the stairs and there's someone's sandals on the bottom stair. Almost <laughs> lost my life. Um, yeah, my kids. shoes are everywhere. I'm sorry. I can't come then. <laughs> ah, darn, darn, yeah. darn. I yeah, used to have a rule that you couldn't like put the shoes in front of the door because in Canada... Or like even just the West Coast, everyone takes their shoes off when they walk into the house, mm -hmm. and oh, it's like right in front of the door. But I'm losing that battle. I mean, I usually take my shoes off. I mean, that's that's. that's we don't do that on the East Coast. It's weird. Don't, yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> I like jump in my bed with my shoes on and like. Oh. I I know now. I know now that I like know about germs. Do you know where your shoes have been? I'm mean, like literally, it's the the ground and it's like you're bringing the whole ground inside of your house like what but I no judgment i was like, never hey, taught that i don't know yeah me neither um hey. so going back to 16 year old chris <laughs> yes. and now that you've been a dad for quite a few years now um how did those two ideas of fatherhood compare to each other mm. i don't think i had much of a clue like what fatherhood uh, was all about. Uh, my uncle uh, have a, had an uncle who was just a great man. He passed away two years ago. Um, but he, he has this quote that I love to say. He's like, I was a perfect parent until I had kids. Um, <laughs> and it's true. You, you as, as someone who doesn't have kids, and I, one thing I used to say to people, like, I hate when people who have kids say like, you don't know what it's like. I, you know, it's like, I, that's always the rudest thing in the world. The truth is, is that you really just can't, you don't have the full scope of, of the situation. You really can't understand what it's like. Um, just like, I can't understand what it's like to, um, you know, have hair, goodness gracious. You know, <laughs> what is that like? You know, like I, I can, I can, I can see the hair on your head. I can um, read about, the experience I can um, synthesize in my mind what it's like, but the day-to-day -day practice is a lot different. And so it's not that you can't understand what it is to be a parent. It's just hard to understand all the nuance in there, all the, the joy and the frustration, the, uh, the push and the pull, the, 
the uh, the amount of energy that it takes to always have someone else's life in your in the forefront of your thoughts mm-hmm. like you're always thinking about does this kid go to the bathroom does this kid eat this <laughs> like this this with food like like you know are they safe um, when I'm away from them are they okay um, this is something that becomes part of your working mind you just as a parent it's always on and it's been on this whole time and I think I, I think it never goes away if, you know if I was to ask my mom today I'm sure she she'd um, say the same thing that she still thinks about me and she still wonders if I'm okay so that's one thing that I, I didn't realize is how much mental energy it took to be a dad uh, the other thing that I didn't understand was just how how fun it really could be and and just how um how incredible it is to watch someone come into the to their own you know like I said when we had all those that period of time when we just had nothing but babies mm-hmm. um it was it was a you know I wasn't able to see much of that developmental piece that that part where they become part of that you could see a little personality in those those first six or so months of life there's a little personality there you can tell like oh oh this is you know this person is going to be like really like funny or this person is really going to be like a go-getter oh that looks like a leader um you know they're crawling <laughs> faster than all the other babies like that's a leader um but you really can't get that that that's still part of of, of a human being growing into who they're going to be that that part that's just like curiosity and I watched my kids get curious about things um curious about colors and now we're in the like why stage um and it's not just like why is why are trees green why are you know clouds and why this or where do babies come from which <laughs> oh, <gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> um Thank goodness for Pixar, because Pixar does a great job with like, <laughs> Pixar gives you a lot of cover. You can say it's a little bit of this movie, a little bit of this movie, kid. Like, that's all you need to know. Um, but my my daughter, especially, it's not asking like why things are and how things are. She's interested in how people function. So she'll say things like, daddy, why did that lady ask that other lady this question. Why did that lady, we, we witnessed an encounter where these two women were in line in front of us at the grocery store. And one was just kind of like, oh, she was asking to like that little bar that separates her groceries. Mm-hmm. Like she's like, she's like, hey, can I get the bar to like, and she's like motions. And the lady's like, no, like got really rude with her. And like, it was like a whole thing. And my daughter sat there and watched it. I wasn't aware that she was watching. She's like, why did that happen? Like, what, what was her deal? Like, she just could have like, it's, it's the bar for the groceries. Like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. But that's how people are sometimes. People, you know, and so we just, we had this whole discussion about like, like you, sometimes you just don't know what people are going through. And some people, you know, they, they look like they're okay, but they're not. Um, some people look like they're, they're mad and they're just thinking, you just never know when we're dealing with strangers. And it was, it was a great conversation because she was just really just, just riveted by this idea that like human behavior is not always so predictable and you just don't know. I mean, it was like a a profound, I was having a profound conversation with a six and a half year old. Like we were having this great conversation about how human beings are just 
you don't know what people are going to do and you and it's it's hard to know and that's why you know we talk about strangers it's not because people are inherently bad it's that we just don't know where they're at in this world i mean it was i wish i would have recorded it because it was like <laughs> an adult it was an adult conversation like we had we had a a a a, a conversation about human behavior of course i'm on a six year old six and a half year old level but still it was a conversation i could have easily had with either of the kates right so when you have like those kinds of conversations, so your kids, they didn't know, I mean, you've been 14 years sober, so they didn't know you as a drinking dad. So have you talked at all about them, about like that you're sober or what that means? Yeah, so my wife has never seen me intoxicated because uh, we met when I was, you know, three or four years sober. Um, and yeah, my kids have never seen me intoxicated. Um, what they have seen is that... <laughs> Um, I buy a lot of bottles at the liquor store. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny because to them, liquor store does not mean alcohol. Um, like I just, I'm looking right here on my, my kitchen table. I have this bottle of, uh, tequila alternative and it's alcohol free, oh. but it's just sitting right here. It's like sitting right here. Um, For a second, I was like, why are you buying bottles at the liquor store? <laughs> but I literally own a bar. And so I have to go and buy right. these. So, so to my kids, a liquor store is not about anything but like buying these like these spirits and these things. Like they have no, they have no knowledge that that um I mean they they I think they understand that alcohol is bad, but I don't think we've had the, the talk about alcohol because all they've seen is my sobriety. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they know that they know that I own a, an alcohol free bar. They know that I make good drinks. In fact, they're the first test subjects that I have. <laughs> but like literally, they will like go into, you know, to the bar and they're like handing me like, you know, here's, you know, here's this case that like they, they don't, they don't have any other understanding of what good drinks could be or what these what's in a, a glass bottle except for alcohol free stuff. Um, I just realized, like, like, yeah, um, you know, and, and that once or twice they have blurted out. My son's like, my daddy owns a bar. I'm like, oh, <laughs> we're going to go to my daddy's bar. I'm like, no, you have to say like alcohol free bar because it's not the, it's not, I don't want my. Don't You're want not taking this. your five-year-old to a bar. Yes. <laughs> I want drinks. to like it's, yes. Um, I've drinks. had many conversations with teachers, like daddy's drinks are not alcoholic drinks. They're they're adult drinks, but they're not for 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 intoxication purposes. They're 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 alcohol free. Um, it's been an interesting thing to like every year. Like, okay, let's have a conversation about what Daddy really does because it's not it's not what yeah. you think it is. That's I was interesting. Say, do they understand though. the difference between? You know, I I don't know. Like that's what I just realized. Like literally, that bottle was sitting right here because I'm working on a new drink. Um, I don't know if they know. And then it's like, I, I have to be, I have to do some education there. Cause I just realized yeah. like, there's they, no they, conscious connection that right. they're making. Like when I grew up, my father drank, but I connected like, okay, when this, when I see this liquid, it turns him into a different person, mm-hmm. <laughs> but with you, they see that and you're still the same person. You're consistent. I don't change. Yeah. So, I don't. Yeah. I just realized, like, yeah, we've not really had the talk about alcohol. Um, they might either think alcohol is totally okay because yeah. you're the same person and, like, <laughs> you can drink as much as you want, or it won't even phase them that, like, alcohol exists. 
I mean, I, well, I mean, obviously we have to tell them alcohol exists. Like now I got a whole, <laughs> I got to sit down and really think about this. Like I've, you know, I've got to be, be mindful of like the way that they see, because the way that they do see is like, daddy doesn't change. Like I don't change. Uh, I can, you know, play around with this whole bottle of, of that tequila that I had in my, on my, my table here. And my, my attitude won't change. Nothing will change about me. I won't wake up sick or hungover. It, I'll be me. Um, and, but, and that's not what alcohol does. So we may, we may, yeah, need to, yeah you're, you're right. We, we may need to have a conversation about that, but, um, I, I, you know, I hope my hope is that we have all the time in the world to have those kind of conversations. Yeah. I was wondering if you have given any thoughts to like, as I grow up, what kind of conversations you'll have with them around alcohol and, uh, you know, how much of your, well, I guess all these podcasts exist now. So how much of your sobriety story you'll share with them? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, think about that all the time. Think about my kids listening to these podcasts, which is why I am mindful of, of the things that I say, because, uh, I never want them to feel shame for the things that I did. I want them to understand that, um, the choices that I made were, were mine to make and they were based on, uh, my own experiences. Um, but yeah, I, I will, I, I will tell them at some point that I struggled with alcohol and, I won't be ashamed to say that. And I'll, I'll also say that I believe that um, we carry a lot of that in our, in our genetics and they are pre genetically predisposed to substance use disorder. That is just part of their genetics. Um, and, and that's something that I have in common with them that I didn't, I didn't anticipate ever having to have that genetic link, you know, the conversation, but it's absolutely there for them. Like we know that they're, you know, that that's something that they're going to have to be more mindful of uh, as they grow up. Um, you know, I, there, there's no such thing as a world without alcohol. There will always be alcohol in this world. And uh, I'm not a prohibitionist. I don't believe alcohol should go away. Uh, it's a liquid. It's a dangerous liquid, a toxic liquid, one that kills people and causes cancer, but it's still a liquid. Um, it's, it's what happens when it, enters our bodies that makes the difference and so yeah I think a lot of that's going to be education and uh, I'm sure they're going to have questions about you know me but um, that's what I love about being a dad is that I don't have to know how those conversations are going to go I've learned to relinquish a lot of control um, by being a parent I, I literally cannot prepare for every thing that's going to happen especially now at this age like you know, it went from like potty accidents and like spilling juice on yourself to like, where do babies come from? Like out of nowhere, you know, um, right. what is my, what is, you know, what is, what is this? What is that? Why are people racist? Like kid, we're just, we're driving down the street. <laughs> like, like that's, that's a whole, that's a long conversation. I don't know how to tell you, um, you know, I can't explain for you like why people are, I don't know how to tell you that. Um, I, I, and, but I try. I try and, you know, I do it in an age appropriate way. Um, and then once they feel like they've had an answer, it's like, if there are goldfish, are there silverfish? It's like, it just like completely like chain, you know, like they're just <laughs> done with the question. And so it's like, okay, well that heavy question is answered. I'll just move on to something else. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. They're back is, in their car seat, like, or booster seat, like thinking about racism and then they're thinking about goldfish. It's a, uh... Yeah, literally, like it just like it just like switches like I want ice cream like. <laughs> okay, so we just we just like, went whoop. through the entire yeah we just went yeah thank you for that uh, now I don't I'm, I'll need ice cream too because I'm sweating bullets. Um, 
<laughs> You're like, you just are dropping like philosophical bomb questions on me and then just attention turned. It's gone. I mean, it's it's gone. I mean, it's like, it'll be at the most inopportune times, like just asking these questions, like what's the nature of life? <laughs> uh, can we play outside? Like, sure. Okay. Go play, go play outside. Go play. I, <laughs> You know, I've just spent an hour Googling how to talk to your kids about, you know, existentialism. And now they want to go play outside. Sure. Let's go. You know, let's go play outside, kids. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So being sober, I know for a lot of us, we have to create our own little sober toolkit or we call it a sober fanny pack. So you already had one created, but now with like parental stress especially like during a pandemic and during the age that they are now it's they're becoming more of their own individual autonomous people um how do you manage your stress oh man um running (laughs) ironically enough uh running it's been the one thing that um i've come back to time and time again just moving my body it's not always running but um, just moving my body. Um, I, I work with a physical trainer and she works especially with people with anxiety. And uh, I continue to struggle with anxiety. So um, it's been great to have a, have a have a personal trainer that really does understand just what it is to, to have anxiety trapped in your body. Um, I do that a lot. I also get out in nature a lot. And, you know, once the pandemic happened, I was, you know, I was flying all over the country doing these events. I was having the bar here in Austin. Things were going pretty good, you know, but so much of my income, like all of it, is predicated upon social gathering. And so mm-hmm. it literally froze my ability to work, could not work. And I was, I was in the house and I had to be still. I had to sit down. I, I could not run anywhere. I mean, for a few, for a few weeks there, there was no, you couldn't even go outside. Um, so I learned to turn towards my kids and we ended up having such creative fun. Um, we really, there was a period where we were watching like just TV, TV, as much TV as possible. And then that became too much. We got in our backyard and started kind of digging around in there and, we started going on hikes and um, it was beautiful to watch them like move around in nature and explore things and take risk, you know, watch them like, okay, we're gonna jump over this little, this little creek, this little pond. It's like, you know, maybe like an inch wide or something. But they, <laughs> oh my gosh, they, you know, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm scared. I'm like, nope, you can do it. Just jump, just try, believe in yourself, go. Um, watching them, you know, create adventure and, and, you know, creating stories and creating, uh, memories like that became the way that I re- relieve stress. Um, and so, as a as a dad, I I've learned that society makes the case that as dads we should be solitary creatures that we should kind of you know the, the old trope of you know the dad's in the garage or like in the shed or you know he's he's working on something <laughs> outside away from the kids you know having a beer. Um, yeah, that, that's not, that's not help healthy. It's not sustainable. It's not helpful. Um, what helps is to turn towards 
your your kids to turn towards your partner. Um, and that's what I've done. I've, I've spent this last year turning towards my wife and uh, we haven't been on a date in over a year. <laughs> um, but but we've well, we made time. We made time when the kids were uh, still asleep in the morning or uh, when it was late at night just to watch, you know, whatever um, K-drama. She's into K-drama. She likes these, these shows. And so I don't follow. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But, you know, I, I, I sat down and I watched until I fell asleep. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just... I've just learned that it's turning towards, you know, um, I think men are lonely creatures. Uh, cis, you know, cis men have been taught and conditioned to believe that they have to figure it out, that they have to have all the answers, that they have to know everything and that they have to um, kind of go it alone. And I think that what that creates is a lot of middle-aged lonely men who are dying for friendship, who are dying for connection. And it's not a lack of people trying. It's just this idea that we need to have it all figured out on our own. Do you think like that's the comparable for men to like the mommy wine culture? Yeah. So mommy wine culture is a real thing. And, and I've watched um, so many of my, my friends who I went to high school with um, struggle with that, who, you know, privately will message me and say, hey, I am. I cannot do this. I just, I cannot. It is not good for me. But then when they step away from it, they, they risk the social shun, being, being shunned, being, being told that you're not part of the, the club anymore, that you're not part of the book club, or you're not part of the, the walking, uh, the stroller, uh, you know, group. Um, it is so unfortunate that we create these, this, this social gravity that, that just makes people anchored into an idea that is inherently toxic, which is that you have to drink wine to connect. Um, I think the same thing is true for, for men. I think, I think dads um, find themselves in a place where being a man looks like sitting on the couch and drinking beer and watching football on a, on a Sunday. Um, it looks like that solitude. It looks like being quiet and, and not expressing your emotions. Um, so I, I think it's it's different than mommy wine culture in that it instead of it being a kind of a group thing, it is very solitary. And the and the more you move into to fatherhood, the more you kind of move away from those social groups, or at least you know I've I've sensed that I've had to really work in the last two years to maintain friendships, and that's mostly and I'm grateful I have the bar like that's my job is to be social. So like. Of course, I have guys that are regulars at the bar. We we drink a few beers at the bar and we talk and we, you know, we have the whole like experience, you know, the everyone knows your name kind of experience. Um, but for most men, I don't know what they do. Um, you know, I I consider myself fortunate in that regard, for sure. Um, so I guess the last question is, do you have any advice for our listeners, uh, especially the men who are fathers? on being a dad in general or being sober and combining the two? Yeah, you know, I think I'll answer that with like, I'll think, I think I'll answer that with the rest of the story of, and how things ended with my own dad. Um, a few years after I got sober, I think I just 
Um, we just got my daughter in our, in our home as a foster kid. I called my dad and I was really nervous about calling him. And I, I, had, I had owed him this conversation for, for so many years and uh, I, just, I just could never bring myself to doing it. Um, so I called him and he answered the phone and he, he was in pretty good shape. Um, and we just had a conversation. I told him I apologize for never being there, for not being a good son. And he, through, through stammers and through stutters, said, you know what, I've never thought anything less of you. Like, you, you're a good kid and I'm very proud of you. And uh, well, our conversations would continue like that. We had very short conversations, maybe a minute or so. Um, January 19th, or I'm sorry, June 2019. June 2019, I, I called my, my father and wished him a happy Father's Day. And that call lasted 30 seconds. But in that call, I said everything that I needed to say to my father. That was the last time I talked to my dad. He passed away August of 2019. Had I known that was the last time I talked to him, I would have thanked him for being um, the dad he was before he got sick. I would thank him for giving me everything that I needed in this world to, to be me. I would give him all the thanks in the world for loving me and my sister uh, in his own way, for fighting against the mental illness that tried to overtake him. I would thank him and tell him that I loved him. I would tell him that I am so much of him and more, that I am proud to be his son, that when I look at my own son, I think about how I can be better, how I can be the dad my dad wanted to be. So much of sobriety for me is not, is not knowing and being okay with not knowing. As a sober dad, I'm okay today because I don't know. I don't know what my, and I'm scared for my kids sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm scared of the world that they're gonna grow up in. I'm scared of um, the questions that they're gonna have to face within themselves. I'm, I'm afraid of um, sometimes for my own safety. Um, but one thing I know is that as hard as this world is, as hard as this life is, it is impossible to go through it drinking. It is impossible to be the kind of dad I want to be if I'm intoxicated. It is impossible to connect and create legacy the way that I want to with my children if I am drinking. So no matter how uncertain today looks, I have a shot at tomorrow as long as I stay sober. Ooh. <laughs> Got us crying again. <laughs> well, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was beautifully, beautifully said. Seriously. Thank you. I don't think I've ever cried this much on my podcast. <laughs> well, I I'm very thankful 
sober or not, I think men do not open up like you just did. And it's a shame that the society has shaped this, like you said, the solidarity of men and you're supposed to put on this air of you have it all figured out. You're supporting everyone. It's back to like the hunters and gatherers. They were the ones to provide. And it's so much of society has moved way beyond where we once were and everything is evolving. And I think that's one of the main themes that has stayed the same is being a man and how you're supposed to show up as a man. And thank you so much for your take on what it is to be a man, because I think if, if half the men in this world had that much vulnerability, it would be a much better world. Thank you. Thank you. Well, on that note, um, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, um, you can find me at um, my website, thesandsbar.com. You can find me on Instagram, sands underscore bar. Um, if you want to reach out via DMs, just DM me. Um, whatever the question is, whatever the thought is, reach out. Um, I'm a connected kind of person. I look for connection. I crave connection. And um, and I believe that that fatherhood, much like sobriety, is something you shouldn't do alone. So reach out. Um, there's so many uh, organizations that are dedicated to, to helping men become better um, in the U.S. and Canada. And I suggest that you do some research around that and find some great resources um, because what I've learned about this journey is that you can always you can always get better, and it, it's it's great to sprint, but it's okay to walk and learn, and and be still and grow. And um, I wish that all of your listeners find their own way to grow. They find their own path uh, through whatever it is they're going through in this world. Thank you. Thank you. Well, awesome. we enjoyed having you on our podcast, and. Yeah, I don't know. I'm speechless. <laughs> Me too, kind of. Me three. Um, <laughs> um, I, I just... We got those wheels turning in your head? Yeah. Um, like, I, like, I had this urge to go run, like, physically go run right now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just honor... <laughs> just, like, I just, like, this urge to run and... And feel the sun on my face and to think about my dad today and imagine me being on his shoulders and imagine um, the, the man that he was and um, disconnect with that part of, part of my, my, my genes, right? The part of my history that's, that stitches us together. Um, I think I'm going to run for him and with him today. Let's all run for someone in our lives that we lost or that mm. feeling we want to feel. And I'm not going to sprint, but you can sprint <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to sprint. I'm going to sprint. Cause I like to, yeah. uh, but thank you so much for this great conversation. Um, 
I hope to hear some good feedback from this conversation. I don't, I, you know. Yeah. Um, and we wish you the best Father's Day. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, all those who are losing, who have lost their, their, their relationships with their fathers through um, mental illness or death. Um, shout out to all the single parents who are holding it down um, and, and doing the role that they need to do. Shout out to all the stepdads who are filling in and stepping into that role, all the foster and adopt um, parents out there who are taking care of our kids who so desperately need it. If you've ever thought about being a foster parent, if that's ever once crossed your mind, go to an informational class. They're doing them online now because of, pandem of the pandemic. It's a great way to figure out if this is a fit for you or not. And in that class, you will hear a very audible yes or no. <laughs> but I tell everyone just to try it out because um, there are kids who need just decent parents. They don't have to be great. They just, they need something. They need something other than what they have. And, uh, you know, maybe you can provide that temporarily for that child. So um, I'm going to go run. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for Thank you. joining us. Yes. And it was a pleasure to meet you and have this conversation with you. Yes. I'm going to go text my dad now. Me too. <laughs> 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 All right. Bye, Chris. Bye. Thank Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thanks for joining the After Party brought to you by the Sober Cates. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep the After Party going, follow us on Instagram at the Sober Cates. <laughs>